You're listening to Sermons by the Park from Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. I'm Pastor Aaron Shepard, and on behalf of the members of our church, let me just say what a blessing it is to have you listen to the message we're sharing and to become a part of what God is up to over here in our little corner of creation. To learn more about Union, you can visit our website, churchbythepark.org. Friends, we live in trying times. There's no doubt about it. There's global conflicts and catastrophes, political and economic uncertainty, cultural changes, generational shifts, and oh yeah, all of the usual trials and triumphs of just being human. Even if you look around and think to yourself, I don't know, pastor, life seems pretty good to me. Don't worry, we all have our trying times. In the church, we set aside 40 days leading up to Holy Week and the celebration of Easter as a time of trial, a time of testing what God can do and what we can do with God. The prophet Malachi wrote, Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Friends, I pray that you may experience that overflowing flowing blessing, even in trying times. Now here's this week's message. The scripture reading this morning is taken from John 12, verses 12 through 16. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the Gospel according to Mark in the 15th chapter. Let's continue to listen for God's word for us here today. Then the soldiers led him, Jesus, into the courtyard of the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the entire cohort. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him. And they began saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck his head with a reed, they spat on him, and knelt down in homage to him. And after mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. And then they compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word here today. Will you join me in a moment of prayer? Let us pray. Come Holy Spirit and dwell in our midst. Come to save us from our complacency. Come to shake us like shaking palms in the wind. And may the words of my mouth and indeed the meditations of our hearts be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O God, our strength, our Redeemer. Amen. 
many months ago when um, Jim and I were making plans for the year, um, and even just a few weeks ago, he, he would ask me, when it comes to Palm Sunday, what is, what's the plan for Palm Sunday? Is it going to be a Palm Sunday or a Palm and Passion Sunday? Which has typically been how it has worked in the past. And I said to him, you know, Jim, we've just had so many hard times, it feels like, this year. Let's just have a real celebration on Palm Sunday. Let's just have it be Palm Sunday this year. And then we met on Wednesday, and I said, well, Jim, I hate to change my mind on you at the last minute. I hate to change my mind. But, um, but it's funny how, how the scripture speaks in these two voices, always in these two voices. On the one hand, singing, ride on, King Jesus. And then on the other, this story so close at hand about Jesus being mocked as the king of the Jews. I think in all this, it's important to remember that whatever our plans are, Jesus had a plan, that he was in control. John's gospel emphasizes this more than any others. John shows Jesus always as in control. In the other three gospels, in the story of Palm Sunday, Jesus sends his disciples out to get the donkey for him, but not in John's gospel. You may have heard it when Pam read it for us earlier. He went. He went and found the donkey. He went and did it because he wanted to make sure that the words of the prophets would be fulfilled. And his disciples, they didn't understand. They had no idea what was going on. I'm sure they thought it was a weird choice for transportation that day for Jesus. But Jesus had a plan. He was in control. And in John's gospel, Jesus is in control until the end. In John's gospel, Jesus carries the cross. Jesus is crucified. And even from the cross, he speaks calmly to his mother and his best friend, the beloved disciple. He speaks to God and he says, into your hands I commit my soul. And at the very end, he declares, it is finished. Jesus is the one who decides when it is finished. The Romans may have put him up there, but Jesus is in control. And so that's why we sing, ride on, ride on King Jesus, knowing that he will be mocked and humiliated for claiming that title, knowing that at the end of that palm-strewn road is a cross. And see, Mark's gospel is kind of the opposite of John's in that sense. It gives us the other side of the picture. It presents Jesus as a victim, someone who is beaten and bruised, someone who is so weak that he can't even carry the cross himself. Many suppose this is why this little detail about uh, the Romans compelling someone to come and carry the cross for him is included. It's meant to show us just how much Jesus was suffering in that moment. But one of the most interesting things, I think, about that moment is that we don't just hear that someone else was compelled to carry the cross. We hear who it was. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. It's the only time he's mentioned. And only in that one gospel are his sons named as well. But I wondered as I encountered this passage, what he was doing there, who this Simon was. 
It's, of course, not the Simon we all know and love, Simon Peter, the faithful but often wrong-headed disciple of Jesus. No, he had already fled. He had already denied. He was already gone. Simon of Cyrene, we are told, is, is just coming out of the countryside. He had just arrived in Jerusalem when he was compelled. He was just passing by, it says. So he didn't presumably participate in that palm parade. He presumably was not there in the temple when Jesus drove out the money changers. He hadn't seen the scene there. He hadn't been in the upper room. He hadn't heard Jesus tell his disciples to love one another as he loves them. In short, Simon of Cyrene knows nothing of Jesus or the events that lead to this moment, and yet, for some reason, we still know his name. We even know his son's names. Perhaps it was because Alexander and Rufus were members or even leaders in the church of that generation of followers of Jesus that the Gospel of Mark was written for. And that the, their origin story, the way they got into the church, is explained in this moment when their father was sort of plucked out of obscurity and made central to this important moment in Christ's passion. In popular depictions of the Via Dolorosa, this, this scene of Jesus carrying the cross, whether that's Ben-Hur or the Passion of the Christ, usually Simon is depicted as, as volunteering to help Jesus under the heavy burden he bears. He sees Jesus bleeding and suffering, and he rushes forward, and he says, and he, and he helps him bear the weight of the cross. He's seen as kind of a good Samaritan, a Christ-like figure, like Jesus, strong enough to bear the burden of another. And this is the kind of muscular Christianity that, that goes along with seeing Jesus as a source of physical and moral strength as well, that we look to Jesus and see a conquering hero, a Jesus who is strong enough to break the chains of sin and even strong enough to overcome death. Many people trust in Jesus because of this sense of his strength, that it gives us some sort of special power in this world. For this reason, many people, uh, many Christians today, think that all we need is that gospel according to John, where Jesus is strong, where Jesus is in control, where Jesus overcomes the world. But of course, the other gospels are present too, because that is only half the story. Faith in Christ may be about the strength to overcome what burdens us, but it is also about weakness. It is about emptiness. The Greek word is kenosis. That's what the Apostle Paul says Christ was for us, what Christ did for us. He says, Christ emptied himself of his divinity and became humble and obedient even to death and death on a cross. In that Seen in Mark's gospel, we don't see triumph. We witness Christ's emptiness. We see Simon enter into his emptiness with him, joining Christ there in his moment of weakness, coming alongside him in his suffering to be with him. And there he is crushed under the weight too. Biblical scholar Michael Gorman says, that it is what it means to truly know Christ and have faith is not just to know the power of Christ's resurrection, but also to share in the fellowship 
of his sufferings. Today we are reminded especially of that aspect of faith. The commitment to suffering. The commitment to a time of trial. Of being with the pain and sorrow of others. Trusting that there is where we can meet God. Because that day, Simon began the day as a passerby and nobody just on his way from here to there. But then he met God, face to bloodied face, and he was under the burden of God's suffering. But importantly, in case you weren't paying attention, he did not choose that. He was compelled to carry the cross. They made him do it. Simon was plucked from obscurity, but he didn't volunteer for that role. This is, this is critical because it, I think it points out something fundamentally wrong with how we so often think about what it means to have faith in Christ. The philosopher Charles Taylor, who wrote uh, an influential text called The Secular Age, once observed that for many people today, to set aside their own path in order to conform to some external authority just doesn't seem comprehensible as a form of spiritual life. The injunction is, in the words of a speaker at a New Age festival, only accept what rings true to your inner self. Taylor is talking about seeing spiritual fulfillment as a challenge for us as individuals, not to live according to some sense of fidelity or loyalty to something beyond ourselves, but to be true to ourselves, to be true to our own desires for our own lives. To thine own self be true is the watchword of our age. The great challenge that we face, spiritually speaking, is, is to figure out what it is that we want for ourselves and then how to get it. And in this milieu, the gospel is often proclaimed as a matter of individual belief and individual seeking about discerning for yourself what fits your wants and your needs and your life's plan. And so thoroughly has this infected our view of faith that we completely misremember that when Simon of Cyrene took up the cross, he didn't want to help. He was made to help. And that even then he was exalted. It may seem incomprehensible to us that this sort of submissiveness could be the gateway to spiritual fulfillment, but that is what the gospel teaches us. Simon did not choose to minister to Jesus that day. He was chosen by design or by accident, we can't know, but we can know that he was chosen and that his life was changed. That he went from a passerby to Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. His son's lives were changed generation after generation, inspired by his act, changed. What if spiritual fulfillment our truest and deepest source of happiness? What if it was not about doing what we wanted to do, but about doing what we have to do? Jesus went to the cross because it was what he had to do. Simon carried the cross because it is what he had to do. And this is not just some sort of ethical dictate, some prescription or some law that we agree to. It's something different. 
Jesus had to do this because Jesus had so thoroughly entered into the very being of God that he was compelled to do as God willed for him. And while we believe today that the worst thing that can happen to us is to be made to do something we don't want to do, the truth is that that is not actually the worst thing. The worst thing that can happen to us is to be so alienated from the very ground of our being that our lives become empty, that hope and love and justice are forever just beyond our grasp, that we're forever hungering after the thing we think we want instead of what God has revealed to us that we need and even has already given to us. In the absence of the satisfaction of our true needs, we see greed and materialism and violence. We see abundant suffering and trying times. And so Jesus calls us to, to minister in the midst of that, to enter in in weakness to the suffering and the fellowship of suffering with others. And so this week, for me at least, that meant listening to the news about another school shooting, to learn the names of the children and the teachers and the custodian who were killed at Covenant Christian School. This in spite of the fact that there were many safety precautions and security measures in place at this particular school, that the teachers were trained. Presumably, everything was in place to mitigate the disaster of a school shooting, and yet, there was another one. And perhaps it is a bit easier to enter into compassion with this fellowship of suffering because it is a Christian school attached to a Christian church. The Covenant Presbyterian Church's senior pastor, Chad Scruggs, he's not from the same denomination where I hold my ordination, but he has four kids, just like me, and his youngest daughter, nine-year-old Hallie Scruggs. She was one of the ones who was killed that day. And, you know, whatever differences we may have doctrinally, I think he and I share in common that when he was called to be pastor of that church, he trusted his children to that church and to that school. That he did that maybe not because he wanted to, but because he felt he had to, because it was what he thought it was his duty to do. And I'm sure there were times this week that he thought maybe if he wasn't the pastor of that church, his daughter would still be alive today. But of course, where in this country can a child be guaranteed safety from violence in schools? I will say this. You can say what you want about living in Massachusetts, that the cost of living is high and the weather kind of sucks a lot of the time. But one thing you can say is that, at least in this state, we are near the bottom of the list in gun ownership per capita. That there is an assault weapons ban on the books in this state, that the sheer volume of guns here is lower, making the likelihood of this kind of violence at least a little lower than it might be somewhere else. And I guess I take some comfort in that. But it doesn't remove the burden of recognizing the pain of those victims and their families, of recognizing the prevalence of gun violence all over this country. And for all of the 
people, all of the children who have been killed in these shootings, there are hundreds of other children who have survived them. A whole generation is growing up having survived school shootings, sometimes even multiple school shootings. It seems like everywhere this is happening. And it's not just, it's not just the schools, of course. It's in the streets and in, in homes as well. So much so that the leading cause of death in children in the United States is no longer childhood cancer. It's not even car accidents. It's gun violence. And what shall we say to these children? What shall we say to this generation? That people have their rights, that if they want to own a gun, they should be allowed to have that gun? If guns are a source of safety or security or a sense of strength or power, then people should, should be allowed to want that for themselves. This is, this is a recipe for a cycle of violence that is disastrous saying that guns don't kill people, people kill people, and people have been killing people since Cain and Abel, and there's nothing we can do about it. That is to accept that this is the world we want for ourselves, for our children, instead of the world that we must have, which is a world where children can flourish without fear. As the United States Senate Chaplain Barry Black reminded us this week, all that is required for evil to triumph is for good people to choose to do nothing instead of doing what must be done. No one wants to carry the cross. In violent times in a country full of guns, no one wants to give up their gun to be left defenseless. But I think that is what has to be done. People with guns kill more people than people without guns. That is a simple fact. And to live in denial of it is to choose the reality we want over the reality that is deeper than this. The deep reality that we are all woven together in a single inescapable web of mutuality. A garment of destiny that clothes every one of God's creatures in light and life. That is the reality that we must have. And so even as we hold on to hope that Christ will overcome, that Christ will be victorious over death, we must also trust in the weakened Christ and take up his cross, not because we want to, but because we must. Because in that we will find something more worthy than strength in numbers or worldly wealth, we will find the peace and love of Christ Jesus, which, in the end, is our only true comfort in life and in death. And if we can do what we must, then maybe, maybe we will be worthy of remembering, like Simon of Cyrene, for the way we took care of the next generation and passed on this faith in Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. I hope this week's message encouraged you, maybe challenged you, but connected with you somehow. If you'd like to connect with us, you can reach out on Facebook or Instagram at Church by the Park. The theme music you hear is Just Do It by RKVC. Until next time. 
and the grace and peace of Christ be with you.